Shut up and sit down. 
He has an article that came out today for the power rankings for the Sweet 16 teams. Before that, 16 things you need to know heading into the Sweet 16. So he's a pretty great source for all things college basketball, and he was kind enough to come on to the show and speak about that. You can also follow him on Twitter at Karen's James. That's K-E-R-R-A-N-C-E James, J-A-M-E-S. So rather than just hearing me ramble, let me turn things over to someone who knows what he's talking about. So I'm here with Kerry Miller. He is a national college basketball writer for Bleacher Report. He's been dialed into college basketball since around 2009, so the man knows a thing or two about hoops and who better to talk NCAA tournament with. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks for coming on the show. I wanted to start here. I know you're dialed in with college basketball throughout the regular season instead of just tuning in for March, obviously. So you know there was a lot of parity throughout the bracket this year. One or two teams didn't really separate themselves as they did last year with Wisconsin, Kentucky, and Duke. So that said, did you have a feel on how you thought this tournament might pan out in the opening four days? And how did that prediction end up going based on what we've seen so far? Yeah, aside from Michigan State losing in the first round, I I think things went about as I expected. Um, I I thought it would be a really chalky tournament, um, and that's based on looking back at the last however many years, 31, since the field expanded to 64 teams. And whenever there's a a crazy season, the tournament usually normalizes a bit, Um, and that ended up pretty much being the case aside from like I said Michigan State I mean we still have all four number one seeds um I never felt that strongly about Xavier I had to write something nice about them when they beat Villanova but even that was a struggle for me I never thought they were that good of a team I had them losing to Wisconsin so at least that piece of my bracket worked out pretty nicely right And a lot has been said, of course, that this is one of the most wacky and wild tournaments in tournament history, really, based on the upsets and the buzzer beaters. Is this a tournament that you enjoy watching with that sort of craziness in the early going? Are you a guy that more prefers the better teams kind of separating themselves from the field? If we have to choose between the two, I'd rather see really good Sweet 16 and Elite Eight games. But I think we we really got the best of both worlds because you had some you know, a couple 13, 14, 15 seeds win in the first round, but they're they're not hanging around anymore. I mean, the biggest Cinderella, quote-unquote, is Gonzaga, and right. I don't think they're a Cinderella at all. I think with their guards playing the way they are right now, they're phenomenal. I mean, we've known all year long that with the Wiltshire and Sabonis combo that they could do some great things if those guards ever showed up, and they finally have. I think they're a legitimate threat to reach the final four at this point for sure. Were you surprised as far as the big 12 and PAC 12 conferences, how much they sort of struggled because they both got seven teams apiece, And of course we know the only team really left standing that's strong is Oregon coming out of the PAC 12 who really didn't have a strong showing at all. Did that raise any eyebrows that they weren't necessarily able to do as well as people thought they might have in the first couple of rounds? Not really, um, and I don't. I've always been of the mindset that um, even though the pack or the Big Twelve has struggled the last few years, I've always said that's the best conference because of how strong they are during this season. Um, there was one we had a we brought our six or five or six, however many quote unquote experts about some basketball that we have at Bleacher Report before the season. 
one of the questions was rank the six conferences in order, uh, the six major conferences. And I said in there that like, if you're picking a conference that you just want to watch, like if you can only watch one conference and you have to watch all the games from it, I'm definitely picking the big 12, but if I'm picking which is most likely to win the national championship, I think I had ACC first. I might've even had SEC second because of Kentucky, but I don't think the, I don't think it's a, you know, an indication that the PAC 12 was necessarily weak. I do think that it will be interesting to see going forward how much of an impact the Pac-12's struggles have on selection in the next couple of years because Pac-12 was not very strong on Ken Palm. And I think we already saw this year with Syracuse getting in with a bad RPI but a decent Ken Palm ranking and St. Bonaventure getting left out with a really strong RPI and not so good Ken Palm that the committee is starting to look more at those kind of advanced metrics so we'll see if they, they have a bigger impact in the next few years because of the Pac-12 struggles this year. Right. They've definitely turned some heads, I guess you would say, in the wrong direction because I know a lot of people were high on both conferences. But you did mention, of course, Syracuse and the ACC getting seven teams as well, but getting six into the Sweet 16, which is the first time that's ever been done. 12-1 and one in the tournament, the only follow-up I guess you would say is Pittsburgh obviously losing how impressed were you at what they have been able to do in this tournament Syracuse included getting those six teams to the Sweet 16 yeah very impressive and I know some have tried to discount it because I don't think that any of the the ACC teams have faced a seed better than a seven thus far but you know that that's kind of an indication of how good they are that they're right. seeded that highly um yeah I, I think you know, you look at the the difference between the ACC and the Pac-12. Because the Pac-12 struggled. I think Oregon's win over St. Joseph's was the only only case of a Pac-12 team beating a seed higher than 14. I guess Utah beat Fresno State, and that was it. But you know, the ACC was able to take care of those kind of middling seeds. I think that that tells you how much stronger of a conference that they were. Um, you know, at the top, those those top five, six, seven teams were. Definitely a tougher field moving forward, but at least they, of course, have the opportunity to play those games. Now, before I get into some of the specifics from opening weekend, let me first give you the floor and see if there were any teams or any games, any upsets that might have impressed you and stuck out to you in the first two opening rounds that we got to see over the weekend. Yeah, I think the the big thing that stands out in retrospect if it really is retrospect after three days is northern iowa um beating texas on that buzzer beater and then having that in crazy crazy letdown against texas a&m uh they were up 12 with 34 seconds left and somehow lost just the most ridiculous comeback um certainly in tournament history i think arguably in ncaa history um i think those are the those two games it's just kind of a coincidence that Northern Iowa was involved in both of them, but I think they were really what we'll remember about the first round, uh, you know, years from now. Um, obviously, the Michigan State losing to Middle Tennessee will also be something that's brought up for <laughs> quite a few years. You know, anytime you talk about a, a 15 upsetting a two, you always look at the most recent one. Everybody was looking at Florida Gulf Coast because they did it in 2013. But, you know, aside from those three instances, it was a crazy weekend, but nothing too too completely out of the ordinary. You know, there wasn't anything as awesome as Ron Hunter falling off his stool when right. his son made that shot last year. I mean, it was 
it was upset crazy, but it wasn't too chaotic, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting for the Northern Iowa game because based on how little amount of time was left, looking back on it, it almost seems like they would have been better off to just inbound the ball full court, throw it out of bounds to the other end of the floor, and make Texas A&M have to advance the ball the entire length of the court each time that they had to score, and they probably would have won that way. I don't know whether I've ever seen a collapse like that, considering they had a 99.99% chance of winning (laughs) with those 34 seconds to go. I don't know whether it's a more impressive comeback by Texas A&M based on the fact that they only hit one three in that stretch to force overtime, or it's just honestly one of the worst collapses we've ever seen in the tournament. I, I think it was definitely more of a collapse than a comeback. Um, you know, four bad turnovers, a terrible foul also towards the end there. But I, I hope that the the fallout from that isn't that we see more teams willing to foul, you know, down 10, down 12 into the final 30 seconds. I think that's the, especially the, the friends that I have that I try to convince to watch more college basketball, they all say that the, the end game is impossible to watch. There's too many fouls, too many stoppages. And if it gets even worse because of this one historic comeback. I don't think that would be very good for college basketball, but it it made for one incredible moment uh, if a moment can last 34 seconds. Right, and they do have the Kansas comeback miracle game several years ago, and Kansas was the number one seed. So the purple uniforms seem to always find their way to the tournament, (laughs) whether or not we want them there or not. So hopefully we see a lot more of them as far as upsets are concerned. But if we are going to talk upsets, of course, we have to talk about Michigan State, who I had winning my bracket. So that didn't take long to be busted. (laughs) Many people were angry, of course, that Michigan State didn't get that number one seed. Tom Izzo wasn't too pleased of it and actually came out and said, which he usually doesn't do, that this was, of course, an NCAA championship caliber team. But they end up losing by nine. And Middle Tennessee State just seemed to really outplay them for the entirety of the game. So how is that something that you think happened as far as there being a coach that led a five seed to the final four and has a great track record? And a lot of his players, of course, were on that team. They just didn't seem like they showed up to play against that team. Yeah, I, I actually thought they played well, at least on offense. They did I mean, shoot I, well. They had, they had a great yeah. percentage. I think it was 45% or 50%. Yeah, I ended up watching pretty much that entire game. Uh, I saw, you know, up on the the ticker up at the top or whatever that all of a sudden Middle Tennessee was up fifteen to two. So I didn't see the very beginning, but watched most of the game. And Middle Tennessee was just—they were like NBA Jam on fire. They were falling off balance, making crazy and one shots. They were hitting threes from three, four feet behind the line. I mean, they just—they could not miss. I really think that any team that they would have faced in that, if they play that game as a 16 seed against Kansas, I think they win that game. It was just one of those magical games for middle Tennessee. I think it was much more so that than it was a Michigan state collapse. And maybe the, maybe the Spartans weren't ready for, you know, the onslaught that they were going to get in the first three minutes or so, but they just, they were never able to fully recover from it. They kept getting it back to within one and somehow middle Tennessee was, school that has no tournament history like whatsoever somehow had the resolve to stay ahead I mean they just they kept 
pushing back every advance that the Spartans had. I was just so impressed by the job that they did. Um, I, I would be surprised if their their head coach's uh, phone isn't blowing up for the next few weeks. So I, a couple quick hitters, I guess you would, for the first round of games. I don't want to bore everybody by going through all of them, but there were a couple ones that stuck out, and, and it seems like they happened months ago. That's just how the tournament goes. An upset happens, and then two days later, it seems like you forget about it. But one of the teams in question was Arizona, who, of course, had the misfortune of playing Wichita State, who kept that first four in streak alive where they won and then won again when they got the opportunity to be in the official tournament. Arizona scoring the lowest point total of their season. But I think what people will, of course, remember is head coach Sean Miller sweating through his white button-down shirt about 10 minutes into the first half. Have you ever seen anything like the misfortune that he had to go through all that game? <laughs> no, certainly not the, the sweatiness of him, but yeah, that was just such a brutal draw um, for Arizona. Uh, even before the, the play-in game happened, I had already planned on picking either Wichita State or Vanderbilt to beat Arizona just because those teams were, their resumes were bad, but they were good teams. I mean, we, we were doing a, um, an updated, you know, tracker ranking all of the teams that, you know, could get into the tournament. I think both Wichita State and Vanderbilt were top 25 on our list the whole week, and they ended up being 11 seed. That was pretty brutal for Arizona. And the actual matchup that they got, just having to deal with the incredible guard play of Fred Van Vliet and Ron Baker, um, Arizona's guards were not ready for that. Uh, they hadn't faced a, a dynamic backcourt duo like that all year long. And, it really showed. I mean, they, they really struggled on offense. That That's as much to do with Wichita State's incredible defense as it was just Arizona was not a good guard-oriented team. So I, I, I was certainly not surprised by that upset by any means. Um, I, I don't think it's a, you know, a, a bad indication of Sean Miller as a tournament coach. I know a lot of people immediately went to, to that on Twitter saying, oh, Sean Miller can't get it done in the tournament. He's never been to the Final Four, blah, blah, blah. It just wasn't a good draw for him. I'm actually impressed that he was able to get this roster to a sixth seed in the first place. Right. He did do very well with them this season, and some people even thought that six was too high of a number for them, that they should have been even a little bit lower, which now I'm sure they wish was the case. We also, of course, had a couple patented 12-seed over 5-seed upsets, if you will. One of the first ones was Purdue losing to Arkansas Little Rock, and it seemed like Purdue had that game in the bag, up 14 with around four minutes left to play, and then the game ends up being a three-point deficit. They're clinging to that lead, and the kid from Arkansas Little Rock makes a shot from the bracket in the midcourt logo from way downtown and ends up sending the game to overtime and they end up winning that game. But I was surprised that Purdue didn't go to their big men more often down the stretch and even in the extra time because they probably have a couple players going to the NBA or could potentially be NBA players, and they really just seem to panic down the stretch. I don't know if that's something to put on head coach Matt Painter's shoulders or if it was just a really great game from Arkansas Little Rock or a little bit of both. That, aside from Michigan State losing, that was the biggest surprise to me. I thought Purdue would just destroy Arkansas Little Rock because that is a, a a small team. They only have one one starter taller than six five, I think. And right. Purdue's front court is what 
everybody loved about this team. You mentioned there, there are probably some NBA guys, AJ Hammond, Caleb Swanigan, definitely have some some professional future coming their way. But and AJ Hammond only shot the ball on one possession in the final 26 minutes, and that is just completely inexcusable. And I don't like you said, I don't know if that that's a something that we need to worry about with Matt Painter. Maybe it was just the guards got kind of out of their flow and forgot about him. Maybe it's just that Hammonds isn't a guy who really commands the ball. I mean, we, we were kind of worried about Hammonds all year long in terms of, you know, he's the guy who can absolutely take over a game when he's playing with passion. I think he's one of the best big men in the country, but he really does seem to coast through games. And that really seemed to happen down the stretch of that one. But yeah, Josh Hagan's just, draining that three-point. He had an off-balance uh, shot from the corner as well in right. overtime. I mean, he was fading to his left, fading to his right. He was hitting whatever he wanted. So, at least from that perspective, there wasn't much Purdue could have done, but I was really surprised they didn't go into the paint more often. And then, of course, Yale with the epic comeback in a way against Duke after being down by almost 30, really putting their mark on the tournament for a team that hadn't been there in seven decades a very long time <laughs> yeah Yale really impressed me and I actually I wrote about them before the season as um one of the teams under the most pressure and I even noted in that slideshow that you know certainly seems a little weird to see Yale and something like this where I was talking about guys like Ben Simmons or Tom Korean or Shaka Smart or what have you but they were clearly supposed to be the best team in the Ivy League um, their head coach, James Jones, had been there for maybe 17, 18 years, had never been to the tournament. I think they they really needed to do something this year, and they they really did. I mean, they were phenomenal uh, in the first round. I was not surprised that they were able to out-rebound Baylor. Um, they went into that game seventh in the nation in both offensive and defensive rebounding percentage. And that was – offensive rebounds was such a huge thing for Baylor this year, and they really kept Rico Gathers off the glass. And once you do that, they become a much more vulnerable team. They don't have phenomenal guard play. Um, they're kind of similar to Purdue in that regard. But the way they were able to come back against Duke impressed me even more than their upset because and they were, I think Duke was up something like forty-six to nineteen. That game was over. Right. And they came back and I mean I was I was sweating in the last few minutes because I was worried I was going to have to jump on and write something about it. Right. So I was glad that Duke was able to hang on. So before we throw it to the Sweet 16, I know there's been incredible examples of the one-and-done type of players, and of course this year, Ben Simmons being example number one of a guy that unfortunately didn't even make the tournament with LSU, but is probably, well, he already has, announced that he's going to the draft. But what's interesting about the tournament, and I think what's becoming the norm in a way, is there's a lot of seniors on these very successful programs and teams that you see in the tournament year after year, and you start becoming more familiar with those types of people. We saw it, of course, with Wichita State and Stephen F. Austin and some of the lower teams, but now we're going to see it with Kansas and Perry Ellis, who seems to have been in college basketball for a decade and a half. He's probably lost more hair while he's been playing college <laughs> basketball than anyone else in the league. North Carolina, Marcus Page, Bryce Johnson. We got Buddy Heald at Oklahoma, Yogi Ferrell in Indiana. These guys that you can really put that face with the school seem to have more luck in the tournament. We saw it last year with Wisconsin, and the exception to the rule, I guess, would be that Duke team with three one-and-dones that ended up getting it done. But aside from them in Kentucky, 
in the past, say, seven or eight years, those really seem to be not the norm, if you will. The teams that are established and have that senior leadership seem to do well in the tournament, and I wanted to get some of your thoughts on that point. Yeah, that's one of the big things that I've looked at in terms of Cinderella teams in years past. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, criteria that you can look at is, you know, how old is your starting five? Um, you know, another big thing is, you know, did you play anybody good during the regular season? I think you you see teams that have played well during the regular season. I'm thinking back to like Florida Gulf Coast a few years ago. Right. They beat Miami during the regular season. They challenged Duke and Iowa State. I think they played VCU as well. So if you're a veteran player, you've seen your team actually do well in those games. I think it really helps a lot. I think it it's more so um, you don't necessarily win because you have seniors. I think it's just harder to win without them. And then we end up seeing – you know, this year in particular, every team you look at, except for maybe Wisconsin, has at least two very noteworthy seniors on their team. And that that is usually the case. Um, you know, experience does play a big part in the tournament, with the notable exceptions that you've mentioned of Duke last year and, you know, Kentucky in 2012 when they had Anthony Davis and whatnot. But unless you have, you know, the best freshman in the country, I mean, even even Kentucky this year, Jamal Murray really struggled in that game against Indiana. You just really can't count on freshmen to to step up, to live up to their full potential in the tournament like you usually can with seniors. It is very rare, and I think this is another example of a year where we do have a lot of older teams, I guess you would say, and guys that have been here before and know what they're doing, and coaches to go along with that. And dealing with the Sweet 16, as we mentioned at the beginning of when we were speaking, so much for parity because here's 16 teams in the field that have all made the Sweet 16 before. They're all names that we know and remember. Whether or not we might have expected them to get this far, as far as chalk is concerned, if you just looked at all these names, 1 through 16, you would say, of course, that's not a surprise at all. Is there any team in the field currently that – might have shocked you a little bit that they've been able to make it this far, or has it kind of gone as expected? I, I think Syracuse is the only one that surprises me. Um, I didn't think they deserved to get in in the first place, and yet they're destroying teams. I mean, they beat Dayton by 19. They beat Middle Tennessee by 25. This, they're all of a sudden playing like they were back in November in the battle for Atlantis, which is the last time we really saw them doing much of anything. But, yeah, aside from that, really chalky, really good teams. I, I think it's crazy that if you look at the left side of the bracket right now, there's a strong argument to be made that Duke is the worst team left out of those eight. Right. I think if you're I, – I don't know if this is a prop bet anywhere. I'm sure it is. You can prop bet anything. But I would take the left side of the bracket to win the tournament. <laughs> I think if you took Duke and threw them on the right side, they'd probably be the third-best team um, in the, the East and Midwest regions. But – and those those games on Thursday and then on Saturday between you know, like Kansas, Maryland, Duke, Oregon, just so many great games, great teams, and you know even better seniors. Getting into Syracuse, they of course have at least a couple older players. One that left Duke and went to Syracuse, which they could have definitely used. That seems to be the trend in this year's tournament. There's two or three former Duke players that they could really use for their bench. You've got Cooney on Syracuse, who just had the torch passed to him to be their three-point shooter ever since McNamara started it back in the early part of the decade. Playing against a Gonzaga team 
who has basically been blowing out their opponents. I think they won by 16 and 23 so far. So my question is, are they going to be able to keep that up against Syracuse 2-3 zone, and how might the Orange be able to stop the Zags and see which team moves on because we're guaranteed to get a double-seeded team in at least the Elite Eight? Yeah, I think Syracuse, you, you would think that their zone would help them out against big men. It has in years past when they had guys like Rakeem Christmas or CJ Fair or however far back you want to go, but that's not the case this year. I mean, Ethan Happ destroyed them early in the season. Clemson Landry Noko had a double-double against him, probably the only double-double of his entire career. Bryce Johnson ripped them to shreds. Marshall Plumley had like 19 points, 18 rebounds against them. The big men have had very little difficulty against Syracuse. I think that's going to play well for Gonzaga and, and DeMontis Sabonis, who could very well go for 25 points and 20 rebounds in this game. I think Gonzaga's finally hitting their stride. Their guards have been great. I think they'll be, they won't be flustered by the 2 3 zone the, the way that a lot of teams are when they run into Syracuse for the first time in you know several years. But I, I think Syracuse's magic kind of runs out here. I think Gonzaga should win and could certainly do so comfortably. Then we have Miami and their head coach, Jim Laranega, who, fun fact, is celebrating, I believe this is the 10-year anniversary since leading George Mason to the Final Four to give a little credit to the Cinderella teams where it's due. They, of course, have to run into a Villanova team that finally moved past the first weekend for the first time since 2009. So the pressure is on Jay Wright a little bit here, I think, to lead Villanova to where people have really expected them to go for the past several years, but unfortunately they're playing a Miami team that is very old. They have a lot of graduate students. They have a lot of people that have been here before and a coach that knows how to do this. So what do you think the keys are for that game and what might Villanova be able to do to get over that hump, if you will? That's, it's definitely the toughest game uh, of the eight on Thursday and Friday for me to get a read on. I, I feel somewhat committed to my other seven picks. This one, I, I might as well just flip the coin five times and let that decide the outcome. But I think if the big key will be Chris Jenkins for Villanova, um, I don't know what Miami is going to do to slow him down because they usually play two conventional big men in Tanya Jakiri and Kamara Murphy. I don't think Murphy is going to be able to go out to the perimeter to guard Villanova's quote unquote power forward, who is their best three point shooter. Right. Uh, I, I think that will be an interesting matchup. Um, Brandon Ingram did well against Miami earlier this season. Uh, there was another stretch for uh, Clemson's Jerome Blossom game did well against them. You just, I, I don't know how well positioned they are to deal with Villanova's three-point shooting, but Villanova is very likely to just go cold from three, too. We saw that when they got blown out by Oklahoma earlier this year. They shot four of 32 from three. So if those, sharp, if those shots aren't falling, they're going to keep taking them anyway. So they can almost shoot themselves out of the game. And then, of course, Kansas, who's probably everyone's favorite at this point, if it wasn't before the tournament started and you stupidly picked Michigan State like myself. <laughs> They've got games now where they had a run against UConn two times in last game, 16-point run and a 19-point run. So we know that their offense could really take off with these guys that have been playing with each other for a very long time. 
Do you see Kansas being able to keep up that type of solid play against a Maryland team that has some players that are familiar with losing and has some players that are really hungry, wanting to really prove themselves, coming, of course, out of a really tough division and definitely has the personnel to at least play very well against Kansas? Yeah, here's another Duke transfer like you were talking about with Rashid Suleiman. Like I said, there's one. Be, he would have been great with so us. so key for Maryland in this game, but I just think that it's crazy that Kansas probably has the toughest draw left of any one seed, and they're still the favorite to win it all. I think that is a testament to how strong that they are this year. Um, I think Maryland, like you said, they're familiar with losing. They, they've had a lot of letdowns this season. They've only really looked like the team we expected to see maybe once or twice all season long. Right, very team, streaky. If that team shows up, they can absolutely be Kansas because I think they have far more – NBA ready talent than Kansas does, but the the sum of the parts or the the whole is greater. However, that saying goes, <laughs> I think Kansas as a team is much stronger than Maryland is. I think they'll they'll figure out a way to beat them, even if you know Wayne Selden has a, a poor shooting night. I think the real interesting matchup in that one is in the front court between Landon Lucas and Diamond Stone, because Lucas hasn't really faced anybody like diamond stone all season if you look at the the big men in the big 12 i think texas's prince ebay is probably the only one that might have an nba future and lucas wasn't in the starting lineup until a couple of games into the big 12 season so he hasn't dealt with a guy like diamond stone if this is a game where stone actually feels like taking over he probably can and then they can pull off the upset but anything short of that i think kansas prevails i agree with that and of course speaking of duke the last time they have beaten a number one seed when they were not a number one seed was 1994. So we're going back a little wow. while to try and see if they could beat Oregon. And another problem I think they're going to face, I don't know how big of a deal it will be because we're dealing with college players, but they do have to travel quite far for this game. They're actually the farthest traveled team of the Sweet 16 teams going over 2,000 miles to get to this stadium to play against Oregon. So I don't know if that might have any negative effect considering they're playing six players at most against an Oregon team that had a scare against St. Joe's. And I was really hoping St. Joseph's won that game because if they had, (laughs) I was expecting a letdown and allowing Duke to go to the Elite Eight because of that. But when you look at Duke teams in the past, it seems like whenever they have these one and done type players, just one of them. They either make it to the Sweet 16 and then lose or don't even get that far. So we're kind of at that point now to see what this team is made of. What do you think some of the keys will be for both these teams to see who moves on to the Elite Eight? Yeah, you mentioned the the travel. I don't think that's going to be a problem so much as the the late tip-off. I mean, this is, I think it's scheduled for 9.55, but, you know, with the the second game and those sub-regionals, it always ends up being a little bit later. So right. this game might not end until midnight on the East Coast. On, to, on a Thursday. Wonderful for our fans. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It'll be fun to stay up for that. But I, I think that their their lack of depth, I mean, like like you said, it'd be great if they still had Michael Benajay or Rashid Sula. Although Benajay would be out of years of eligibility at this point, but still. True. Um, I, I think the, the Oregon's seven-man rotation is going to be better than Duke's two-man attack with, you know, sometimes Luke Kennard and Marshall Plumley show up, sometimes they don't. But even at that, they only really go four, four and a half deep with legitimate scores. I think Derek Thornton will be 
much better next year, the next few years, however long he decides to stay. But I don't think he's going to really fare well against uh, Oregon's Tyler Dorsey. I don't know what Duke is going to do to slow down Dylan Brooks. And if Chris Boucher decides to play for this one, he didn't do much of anything against St. Joseph's, but he's one of the most matchup proof players in the country. I mean, he's a six foot 10 shot blocker with three point range. I mean, it's kind of like Frank Kaminsky, um, but even better on defense. I think Oregon has more horses than Duke has, but if Grayson Allen and Brandon Ingram are draining threes, you know, that's always the thing with Duke. If they're hitting their threes, they can win. Well, they're both averaging 20 points in the tournament, and I don't know if they're the only duo to ever do that, but I know they're one of the few. So you're basically going to ask them to have almost career nights, Luke Kennard to do the same, Marshall Plumley to have a 2010 night, and then hope somebody else fits in to help them, and then ask them to do that again a couple more times. So I don't necessarily know how well they'll do, but as I mentioned, now that Michigan State is done, I could pretty much just tailor my focus to rooting for the team I actually root for <laughs> instead of my bracket. Texas A&M coming off that miracle win, of course, having to run into Buddy Heald, who played out of his mind in the second half when that one player decided that he was going to talk smack to him and say, I thought you were going to be the player of the year. What are you doing? And then he went out and scorched them for 21 points or whatever it was. What do you think the keys are for this game as far as what both teams will need to do and how they could shut one another down, especially Buddy Heald? Well, just just like with Duke, uh, the situation with Oklahoma is always whether or not their threes are falling. And they've been consistently either the best or one of the three best three-point shooting teams all season long. Um, they kind of lost that shot a little bit in February, uh, but it's been back for the last few weeks. So if they're hitting threes, they're really tough to beat. I mean, you saw what Buddy Heald did against VCU scoring what, 36 points after being held scoreless for the first 10 minutes of that game. I mean, that's just one example of what an electric scorer he can be at times. And I think that Texas A&M's defense isn't good enough to slow down uh, Oklahoma's three-point assault. Uh, If Tyler Davis decides to have a big day in the paint for Texas A&M, maybe it's a different story, but I, I think that the I don't, I don't even know what the spread is in this game. I'm sure Oklahoma is favored by a few points, and I would even probably still take them to cover that as well. I, I think they should win comfortably, even though Texas A&M it does feel like they're you know riding that momentum. They they almost feel like they're unbeatable after that insane comeback. We of course have Indiana riding that momentum from another great win. Tom Crean seemingly was written off in the beginning of the season and had to deal with some injuries, and now he's got this team playing their best, it seems, at the right time, shooting 50%, which is one of the nation's best, but, of course, having to play a North Carolina team that have held opponents under 45% for the past 27 games. So it seems like Indiana, once again, is going to have to shoot lights out, but again, we don't know if North Carolina might not be the team we expect them to be. There's been times this season where they didn't really show up to play, but it does seem like since they lost to Duke, they've turned it on, and they have two great players that have been here before that might be able to carry them over that team. Yeah, I think this is going to be, I mean, you're, you're a Duke fan, you'll remember this one, the, the Duke-Syracuse game from a couple of years ago that ended up going into the 90s, just it was all... Duke was just firing nothing but three-pointers. Syracuse was doing nothing but scoring in the paint. I think Indiana will be shooting like crazy from the outside. 
I think North Carolina is just going to destroy Indiana on the inside. It's just a question of, you know, how many threes does Indiana need to make up for all of North Carolina's twos? I think this is going to be a really a fun up and down game with a ton of scoring. Um, but if Indiana plays the type of defense that they played against Kentucky, that's a different story. I mean, we, we said coming into the tournament, if Indiana's going to do anything, they got to get hot from three point range. They got to score a ton. But all of a sudden now they're playing better defense. I think they're one of the most well-rounded teams left in the tournament when they are defending. I think Yogi Ferrell is one of those guys, kind of like Buddy Heald, who can just, even if it looks like he's having an off night, all of a sudden he's going to have 25 points and six assists and maybe even more in this up-tempo game against North Carolina. I think it's, I would say this is like a 92-87 type of game. It could go either way at that point. It's just a question of kind of who has the ball at the end. So we're taking the over is what you're saying in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I would advise Take it, whatever it. it may be. <laughs> then we have Notre Dame and Wisconsin, both teams that were on the right end of buzzer beaters. The Wisconsin buzzer beater in the corner, the Notre Dame tipping from a kid that averaged two points a game and had, I think, eight offensive rebounds the entire season. <laughs> Wisconsin really coming through, having to deal with Bo Ryan stepping down, playing great basketball. This is a team that, of course, got to the national championship last year, so they know what to do in these situations against a Notre Dame team that has had its up and downs as well, where they seem to dominate Duke when they play them, and then they'll go out and lose to a team that you expect them to beat by 25. What do you think happens in this game as far as if Wisconsin can really ride out what they've been able to do, or if Notre Dame can get their act together in the Sweet 16 and move on? That, uh, exactly. Can Notre Dame get their acts together? Because they're, I think they're still probably top ten on Ken Palm in terms of offensive efficiency. But that has not been the case for the last few weeks. I mean, we saw them beat North Carolina earlier this season. I think it was an eighty to seventy six game, and then in the ACC tournament, they lost by thirty one to North Carolina because their offense just didn't show up in any way, shape, or form. Right. They had a few few ugly losses towards the end of the season. They scored like 56, 58 points. If that team shows up against, you know, a Wisconsin team that wants to beat you with its defense, I think that's going to be a huge problem for Notre Dame. But to me, this one really comes down to the battle in the paint between Zach August and Ethan Happ. And I think Ethan Happ has been the unsung hero of this whole tournament. He's been phenomenal both on offense and defense for Wisconsin. If he's able to to shut down Zach August like he shut down James Farr for Xavier or Michael Young for Pittsburgh in the first round, I don't know what Notre Dame's going to be able to do to outscore Wisconsin in what could be a, a 62 to 53 type of game. Then that leads us to the last game that it seems like no one is really talking about as far as excitement or great seniors or any of those types of things and buildups that we're getting in other games. Virginia holding that one seed, playing Iowa State, looking to continue their run of being that unsung hero in the tournament. We know that Virginia plays that great defense. Is that going to be something that will be enough to stop Iowa State? And in the same token, can they get over that hump against Virginia's defense and take them down? Yeah, that's the the big question. There, you don't assume or even ask Iowa State to speed up Virginia. I think they played one game all season with more than 66 possessions, and the national average was 69. So they're always going to play slow no matter their opponent. It's just a question of whether – 
Iowa State is willing to to play efficiently at that pace. And they they've won a few games this season against uh, Oklahoma State. Those were both low low scoring games. The the game against Arkansas Little Rock in the round of 32 that was I think a 63 possession game. So they've shown they can win at a slower pace, even though they're regarded as a team that likes to push the tempo, try and just outscore their opponents. But I think the real question is Iowa State's defense, whether they can stop Malcolm Brogdon and Anthony Gill. If Gill has a good game, um, you know, George Niang is a phenomenal scorer, um, one of the best, you know, old man games in the country, but he's (laughs) not much of a defender. Uh, If Gill decides to take advantage of that, I, I think Virginia should win. I think the big key for Virginia will be driving the lane and trying to draw contact because Baylor and West Virginia are those types of teams that you know they, they really thrive on uh, pushing the pace or pushing the ball down low, trying to get offensive rebounds, trying to draw contact. And they went 4-0 against Iowa State because if you try and draw fouls on them, they're like Duke. They're a very short rotation team. They're just going to play Olay defense and let you go to the rim instead right. of you know, giving you the foul. So if if Brogdon, Parentis, and Gill are just trying to get to the rim, they'll be able to do it pretty much as often as they want. I think that will be the reason Virginia wins. So I don't know how your bracket has turned out. Probably decent, because you do say if, if people want your help, we'll, we'll go up by 1% in our bracket 1%. pool if we listen to you. So that's why we're here. Who do you yeah, see I'm... as going to the Final Four when all this dust settles in the next upcoming days? Yeah, usually my bracket is terrible and it that, got that usually trouble. seems to be the case with people that know what they're talking about right exactly but i actually did really well so far this year i, I had michigan state in the final so i'm not winning any bracket pools by any means but so far it looks pretty good i just don't have much uh much future value in it but i, I think it's all the one seeds at this point i, I think Everybody points to Oregon as the one week one seed, but I was really impressed with them all season long. I think both Virginia and North Carolina, if they can win on Friday, should be heavily favored on Sunday against whoever comes out of the bottom half of their respective regions. So I, I would be surprised if we don't get at least three one seeds into the Final Four, and we could have a repeat of 2008 with all four of them in there. That does seem to be likely, I guess, if you will, and they're definitely well-deserving teams. And based on how the tournament has gone, as we mentioned with the chalk talk of the Final Four, we might as well get it that way. All one seeds, and we'll just battle it out and see who wins. Who do you think, based on those four teams, is going to take home the national championship in 2016? I I thought it was Kansas pretty much all season long. Maybe not all season. Probably by mid-December, I decided Kansas was the best team. Um, I don't see any reason to to deviate from that. I think they are. They have the highest floor of any team. Uh, that's such a big thing when you're looking at having to win six straight games. So I, I'm picking the Jayhawks. I had them before the tournament, and I, I still do. I would be I would be really surprised if they're the one one seed that doesn't make the Final Four. But I think once they get there, they'll they'll be good enough and talented enough to pull it off. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for joining the program. Kerry Miller, of course, of Bleach Report. He's got several articles more recently about the Sweet 16, which I will attach into my show notes. So if you people really want help the rest of the way, he's our man. Thank you so much for coming on, sir. Hopefully you can talk again soon. 
Hey, sounds great. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes over on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and find that link in my About Me section on the website. Next time on The Bridge, we'll recap the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, take a look at the Final Four, who might end up being the champion of the 2016 NCAA tournament, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. It's the most wonderful time. Yes, the most wonderful time. Oh, the most wonderful